Byron and Chris both for our scripture readings this morning. Today we're in the, the third part of this series, the series on big picture Christianity, big picture Christianity. That is why we are here. Why did God create us? Why did he put us here uh, on this earth? Um, you know, we've been talking in terms of a puzzle, how uh, oftentimes Scripture is, is so long, uh, you know, 66 books, 40 writers, um, lots of different genres written over 1,500 years. can be difficult to get our arms around it and get a big picture, kind of like uh, the the box top on a puzzle we need to see be able to see the big picture to put all these little pieces together and fit them together in a way that makes sense of the whole and so that's what we've been trying to do these past two weeks and we'll continue that this morning and next week today though I want to look at what is the key to be us becoming like our self-giving God what's the key thing that we need um we've looked already at um at who God is, what his love is like. We saw that in Exodus 34. Uh, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's his self-description. And, and we sum that up by, by saying that God's love is self-giving. We saw in 1 John, in the, at the end of the New Testament, that John said God is love, that his very essence is to be self-giving. Uh, that's what the, the Father, Son, and Spirit have been doing for all eternity within the Godhead is pouring themselves into each other with self-giving love. And we learn from Genesis one twenty six that we've been created to image God. And if we're going to image him in his essence, we need to be able to display self-giving love. But our sin keeps us from that. And so we need a rescuer. We need a savior. We need somebody to rescue us from our sin and to make us, uh, recreate us, if you will. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to begin, again, looking at um, what it, what's the key to becoming like our self-giving God. One, one other thing from last week I forgot to mention. Uh, we looked at Philippians 2. We saw what this love looks like in the flesh. As, as Paul described Jesus there in Philippians 2, uh, who, who laid aside the splendor of heaven and came to earth and became one of us. And we saw in the living flesh, what this self-giving love looks like. And he said, this is what we are to be like. And he, he said specifically, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's a, a, a very a practical definition or a description, if you will, of what self-giving love looks like in human terms. Now it tells us what it is, but we need the power of God to carry through with that. So today, today again, we're going to be looking at the key to, to becoming like our self-giving God. Just a few, uh, a brief overview, if you will, of Ephesians before we jump in here. Um, Ephesians was a general letter. It wasn't, even though it's called Ephesians, uh, it was written to a number of churches in and around Ephesus that Paul had planted uh, during his, his, his time of using Ephesus as his base of operations. And so it's not specifically directed towards any one issue, like we saw in Philippians last week, that, that there were some relational difficulties in the, that were kind of dragging the church down. And so he, he went straight to the heart of the matter in that, that chapter 2 that we looked at last week. 
and it, it is so helpful in seeing, helping us to see how we are to relate as human beings. Um, the main point, though, is it's a very concise definition of the Gospels, especially chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4 through 6 are, are a, an ethic, if you will, how we are to human, as human beings are re, to relate to, to one another in light of this Gospel. But strategically, right in between those two big sections is this prayer that Byron just read a few minutes ago. And this prayer is key to understanding how the gospel turns us into people who can love the way God loves. And it's strategically situated at the end of, of that, that, that concise description of the gospel. Uh, and it's almost like an exclamation point. Even the, the verse that he didn't, didn't, I didn't have him read after that, verse 20 and 21, are a, 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 Paul breaks into exuberant, almost spontaneous worship as he comes to the end of that section. And it's one that, that we use for benediction in our service many times. Um, but again, it, this, this, this prayer that we're going to look at this morning gives us the key insight on what it takes to live lives of self-giving love. It's also very Trinitarian. You may not have noticed it in this passage, but, but this prayer, Paul mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, just like he does throughout this letter. It is explicitly Trinitarian that reminds us that the God we worship is three persons in one being and that we should worship him accurately in that light or in that way remembering these three persons within this one being overall too note that this is a prayer and anytime in anywhere in scripture when you see a prayer it's almost like our ears need to sort of pay particular attention because when we see a prayer, we see one that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we need, to, we need to analyze that prayer and say, what is specifically this person asking for? What is the Holy Spirit inspired this person to ask for so that we can see our need for praying it as well? And that's very true this morning. And that's why I want to look, sort of dive, do a deep dive into this prayer. Um, and that way you can... You can Fashion your own prayers after these. Use these requests. Formulate your own requests based on what these prayers are talking about. Even I would even suggest memorize the prayers and then pray them back to God. And they will become a, a more and more a part of it and just be embedded in your subconscious almost. So that's one of the applications here of a passage like this is that we need to pay specific attention to what this person is praying for and realize that, that we can use that in our own prayer life. Now, section one that, that Byron read there, uh, and actually he, um, I had him start with 16, but, but if you go back to verse 14, um, let's see, he says, I kneel, that is Paul, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. So again, he's, he's addressing the Father in this prayer. Now, the passage that Chris led earlier, Jeremiah 31, verses 30, 31 through 34, verse 33 specifically says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. If we look back at at verse 16 that Byron read there, Paul prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches, that is the Father, out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. This is what Jeremiah is talking about here uh, when he, when, in this verse that I just read. Again, um, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. One of the things happens to us when, when we are converted, when we, when we come to Christ, when he draws us to himself, is that the Holy Spirit indwells us. It's one of the miracles of salvation. And Paul is talking about him indwelling our inmost being. Scripture usually uses the word heart, but here Paul, for whatever reason, chooses inmost being. The control center of our lives is where the Holy Spirit indwells us. And that's what he's talking about here. Um, and he did, just didn't, he talks about writing, and Jeremiah, he talks about writing the law on their hearts and on their minds. It's not like he, he inscribes the words like, like uh, Moses chiseled the words in the, in the tablets when he, when he took the Ten Commandments from God. God does even more than that for us. He gives us his spirit to tell us, to guide us, to, to uh, motivate us, to influence us with the truth of God, with the law of God. So we have this constant companion, this constant guide that's better than having a book. It's better than having a page. It's having a person to guide us, who indwells us. And it's as we grow in Christ, we begin to to hear his voice more and more clearly, to pick it out of all the voices that are in our heads sometimes, uh, and to pick his voice out and to hear and to understand us, understand, grant us understanding. Even every Sunday as we pray for this prayer, pray, excuse me, Chris prays this prayer of illumination. That's what he is doing. He's asking the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts with the truth of God. And that's why God, or how God writes his law on our hearts in real time, constantly with us, constantly abiding in, the, in us to, to do that for us. Now, uh, again, he, 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 if, you, if you notice here, he always, uh, almost always in the New Testament, when, when a writer talks about the Spirit, many times it's also associated almost in the same thought of power. The Spirit, He empowers us. The power of God comes through the Spirit. And we, oftentimes if you see one, you see the Spirit mentioned, you, 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 you see power uh, mentioned almost in the same breath again. Why do we need power? Well, I, the, the short answer is to overcome our own sinfulness. But think of it like an airplane. An airplane needs lift underneath its wings to be able to get off the ground. But what's holding it on the ground? Gravity, right? So there needs to be some power exerted on that airplane such that it generates lift underneath the wings to overcome the gravitational power and to get off the ground. The Holy Spirit functions sort of like that for us. We need power to overcome our own sinfulness, our own tendency to 
to think only of myself or to think first of myself, to, to be selfish and self-centered and even self-obsessed. We can't change that without the Holy Spirit's power. And so Paul is praying that we would have that power uh, here in our lives to overcome our sinfulness. And again, he's, it's Trinitarian here. He, he, he kneels before the Father. Uh, he asks uh, that he would strengthen us with power through his Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So again, we see all three of the persons of the Godhead mentioned here. So what is Paul asking for? Again, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Christ would be the motivating influence in our lives. And he would do this by faith. We would be motivated by Christ through the faith. Uh, this settled belief within. Think about it. Think about it like this. I don't know how many you, how, how how many of you can remember when you learned to drive. For some of us, it was probably a little a little more recent than others. Um, or or if you if you've really really had fun with this, you've taught your children to drive. You may remember that even more clearly. But think about it. When you first learned how to drive, what did you have to do? You had to be very conscious of every move you made. You had to be conscious of when to take your left foot if you got an automatic. It's even more complicated if you have a clutch. But just let's just say this is an automatic. You have to be very deliberate about placing your foot on the brake and putting the right pressure on that brake, depending on how quickly you want to turn. Let off the gas, press the brake if we're going to make a turn, and slow the car down. And then as the traffic clears, we, we learn to turn the wheel. And we have to think about every single one of these moves because it's just not natural to us yet. But think about then maybe six months later or a year later or sometime later on after you've learned how to drive and got the mechanics of it down. Have you ever been somewhere and you drive, I don't know, maybe from the grocery store or maybe from work, or, and you get home and you think, you know what? I don't even remember making that trip. You just, you know, you were at work and now you're home. You're so fixated on something that maybe happened that day that you don't even remember. That's driving by faith almost, right? It's, it's just embedded in my self-conscious. I know how to drive that car. I don't have to deliberately or consciously think about it anymore. To be motivated, to be influenced by spirit, by, by Christ, by faith, this his truth about who he is is just embedded even in our subconscious. That's what it means to live and to walk by faith. And that's what Paul is praying for us here in the first part of this prayer. Again, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you, that is the Father, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, that we would have the power of the Spirit empowering our lives. Second section, verses 17 through 18, talking more about this motivating influence. In fact, there's another verse in, in 2 Corinthians that we did not read this morning, and it's just almost like a, a, 
offhand verse that Paul writes there, it, it, it sheds even further light on this. It says, he, Paul says, for Christ's love compels us. And I love that phrase, it compels us. It's something within me. It's not, it doesn't propel me. It's not something outside me that's pushing me. It's something that's in me. It's, it's a motivating force. It's, for Paul, it was why he, the reason he got out of bed in the morning. That's how important Christ's love is for us. It is the motivating influence in our lives. We, again, we saw that last week in the Philippians passage, what that love looks like in person. And now we're looking at, again, how that love takes its, has its effect in us. So first of all, in this section, the second section is where Paul uh, describes us, that is the church, the people of God, as being rooted and established in love. He's using a, a farming and a construction metaphor here. Again, being rooted. Have you ever rooted a rose bush or rooted a plant? You have to have very nutrient-rich, luxurious, nurturing soil. And so Paul is comparing God's love to that kind of soil, something that allows us to, to grow and to flourish. And then he adds a second metaphor. He talks about it being, us being founded in the love of God. It's a construction metaphor, and, it's, and our love is, is not just in this, uh, rooted in this nurturing love. It's rooted in a love that is rock solid, that will not shift, will not change. We can always count on God's love because God does not change. And so that's, that's, that's how we are, again, to, to use those metaphors, rooted and established. Our salvation flows, again, out of the heart of this loving God. Now, verse 18, he says, Together with all the Lord's holy people. I memorized this verse probably 15 years ago, and so the old NIV says all the saints, and so I'm always usually uh, tempted to use the older the older uh, translation there. But when we look at this verse, we tend to look at it as individuals because we live in a West that is a, a hyper-individualized culture. But Scripture was written in a culture that's much more community-minded, much more uh, um, almost clannish, if you want to take it to a degree, uh, uh, too, uh, almost too, too, uh, too far sometimes, where we look down our noses at others. But, but we, we read this, and, 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 and so Paul is praying that um, this would be for us, for his people, that we would grasp this together so that it becomes a dynamic that we see within the local church and the church universal. That why? So that we will be known by our love. Remember, Jesus said, that's how you would distinguish my people is by how, uh, how well we love one another. And we see that again here in this passage. <clears throat> and then he says, he finishes this, this section, he says that, that the Spirit again, we're talking about the Spirit because we're talking about power, that he would give us power to grasp together how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Again, we need the power to see this kind of love. We need the illuminating power of God to be able to grasp this kind of love because it's not available anywhere else. 
We just don't see this kind of love in our world because of our sinfulness. And the world is not going to see this kind of love if they do not see it in us. And they'll, even then they won't see it perfectly. But what they should see when they look at us is people who, as we described last week, who put the interests of others ahead of their own, who do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And it's through the Spirit that He empowers us to love like this. And then finally He says, again, to grab, excuse me, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, So again, we need this power to grasp the immensity of Christ's love for us. And finally, we come to section 3 of this prayer, verse 19. And Paul prays, he says, uh, again, why do we need this love? Why do we need to grasp the immensity of this love? And he says, to, to, know the, excuse me, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is what this whole thing has been building towards right here. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. When oftentimes in Scripture... When we come across the word know, we in the West almost immediately think of intellectually knowing something, knowing something factual, knowing some information. But more often than not, when the word know or the concept of know is used in Scripture, it's a much more personal kind of knowing. It's a a relational knowledge, knowing another person. Uh, Even when in 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 Genesis, when Moses wrote that, that Adam knew Eve and she conceived a son, it implies a a very intimate knowledge of another person. Uh, It's not just, in fact, oftentimes it doesn't even, it's not even talking about intellectual knowledge. And that's what Paul is talking about right here. Um, If you look at John 17, 3, the the verse that um, Byron read, or excuse me, he he read the whole passage, verses 1 through 4, of, of John, but if you look at that, that section, if you look at verse 3, Jesus says he defines an er- eternal life, and it's interesting how he describes it here. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We see that, that, that form of the word know being used again here. Now, how do we know God personally? Well, it starts with knowing about him. We need to have an accurate understanding of who God is. But the knowledge that Jesus is talking about here goes beyond. that. that it's built on that knowledge that we have of God, but it leads to a personal knowledge of him, a relationship with him, a, a relational kind of, of knowing of a person. And it's something that we will even feel. There's an experiential component here. And I know us Presbyterians get a little squeamish when we start talking about emotion. Uh, we, we Presbyterians are often known for our cerebral approach to the faith, uh, very intellectual. Uh, we, we value right and precise doctrine. We value right and precise interpretation of Scripture. And that's a good thing. The problem is we oftentimes stop there and we get proud of our knowledge. God wants us to love us, him, him with our whole being. Remember the first great commandment. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That is, we love him with all of our being, including our emotions. And, and that includes experiencing God relationally. In fact, you can see it in this, in this prayer. When he gets to the end of this prayer, he, he breaks into spontaneous worship. And so we need to have an accurate understanding of who God is. But that accurate understanding should lead at some point to us having emotions for God that are driven, again, by an accurate understanding of who God is. And this is, this is the goal, really, of our salvation, this, of working out our salvation. This thing that we looked at last week, remember in the end of the Philippians passage, I talked about how, what Paul meant by working out our salvation and how the, the means of grace, uh, God pours his grace, he pours his love into our hearts through our scripture reading and our scripture study. And we learn to, to what God thinks and we learn to think his thoughts after him. And then we pray those thoughts back to God through prayer. Uh, we take advantage of those means of grace and with, with communion on Sunday mornings as well. It's all a part of working out our salvation. But the end goal of all of that is that we would personally know God and go deeper and deeper in that personal knowledge of him. And it's in knowing him personally. It's in knowing this love personally and feeling it that we become transformed by it. And it's out of that, that knowing God's love, that we then become, begin to be able to take little baby steps in self-giving love. Remember when your kids learned to walk? I know you probably don't remember when you learned to walk, or I don't. But we take a few steps and we fall down. We're never going to do it perfectly in this life, but we will, as we, as, we lo- as we know more and more the love of God, then we begin to become more and more able to walk in that love and to love the way that God loves. And so as we come to this, this passage, this is what Paul is talking about. That we become loving people as we learn what love is and we experience that love for ourselves and it transforms us. That is what Paul is praying for here in this passage when he gets to the end of this incredible exposition of the gospel, very concise explanation of the gospel in chapters 1 through 3 of, of Ephesians here. Again, that we, that this gospel is meant to bring us back into personal relationship with Christ so that we can bear his image of self-giving love in this world around us. It's interesting, this week I was looking at my phone as I'm, I know you guys never look at your phone, right? I look at mine an awful lot. And Google has learned what some of my preferences are. I have an Android phone, so that means Google. they got Google services running, and they know what I look at on the Internet. And, and so they're constantly feeding me stuff that are, you know, they've kind of honed in on what my interests are. You know, fitness stuff and, and right-eating stuff, that's kind of my thing right now or one of the things I'm into. Uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, because Tom Brady's the quarterback, they always shoot that stuff to me. But for some reason, I'm not a Green Bay Packers fan, but for some reason they sent me an article this week about Aaron Rodgers. <clears throat> As my wife will tell you, I'm not a big fan of his, but um, he did. someone released a podcast this week that he, they did an interview with him, 
And it was striking in light of this passage when I read this article. But the title of it was, Aaron Rodgers Recalls a Psychedelic Peru Trip. Let me just read you some of the, the uh, excerpts from this. I won't, I won't read it all. <clears throat> but he recalled taking a trip to Peru to do ayahuasca, a plant-based psychedelic tea containing the hallucinogenic drug DMT. Never heard of it. Which he said helped him to perform, to perform better on the football field due to its mental benefits. So he planned a trip down to Peru with some friends to, as he says, go do it. He recalled, referring to the start of his ayahuasca journey, uh, he says, it was the best day of my life when he did mushrooms, ayahuasca mushrooms on the beach with his friends. But listen to how he describes this. My intention the first night going in was this. I want to feel what pure love is. Can you imagine? I want to feel what pure love is. That was my intention, and I did. I really did. I had a magical experience with the sensation of feeling 100 different hands on my body imparting a blessing of, and get this, love and forgiveness for myself and gratitude for this life. Now, I don't know Aaron Rodgers personally, but I don't get the impression that he's, he's, he's a Christian. Uh, but, but it's striking the wording that he is using here. He wants to experience pure love. He feels this need of forgiveness, which implies he feels some guilt and some shame. And he's looking for relief from it. He goes on to say um, that ayahuasca helped him discover, and here's where it goes off the rails, self-love as an intense part of the journey in which he sat with negative thoughts and criticism about himself. He says, to me, one of the core tenets of your mental health is that of self-love. That's what ayahuasca did for me, was help me to see how to unconditionally love myself. That that just fascinated me as I read that and, and what he was after. Unfortunately, you hear our, our culture speak about self-love. Unfortunately, you even hear it in churches sometimes. It's not mentioned in Scripture, which is the problem with that. Love is something that's experienced between one or, or two or more people or, or persons. You have to have at least two people for there to be love because it's, it's a relational thing. I'm, you, we talk about our relationship with ourselves, but that, that's something very different. Love is something that is experienced between one, two or more people. And so it, it's, it, it's almost nonsensical to, to, to even use the term self-love. But, again, it's striking to me that the imagery that he used there. He wanted to experience pure love. He wanted forgiveness. It's, it's, it's just part of human nature to want those things. There's something inside us, and we know that's God himself, that, that is drawing us to this, this love that we long to experience. But it's almost, for those of you who remember an old movie back in the 80s, um, Urban Cowboy, there was a one-hit wonder that came out of the soundtrack of that movie, um, looking for love in all the wrong places. Without 
Without the Holy Spirit, we will look for this love in all the wrong places. We will look for things that, that gratify or, or help us to feel good about ourselves. Uh, whether it's our work and, and our success and our performance, it makes us feel good about ourselves, gives us a good self-image. Have you noticed how those things are so fleeting, though? Because they aren't meant to be lasting. It's only the love of God that makes us truly feel worthy to truly be forgiven. We have to have his love to be able to, to uh, again, have this, this peace within. And it's only as we have this love that then we are in turn able to give it to someone else. As we experience the self-giving love of God, as the Holy Spirit works this in our hearts, and we know this love personally, it's then that we can begin to love the way we are called to love. In in Philippians 2 there. Again, so 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 how do why do we need to know this love to surpass knowledge? Because we can't be self-giving if we aren't concerned, uh, convinced, excuse me, that we are deeply loved. And so again, one of the goals of our salvation is to work out our salvation such that we become people who are able to do this. The gospel is what convinces us that we are so deeply loved. And as we are deeply loved, as we know this love beyond knowledge, we know that we are are loved, we know that we are accepted, then we are able to give ourselves away. This is the key to becoming loving people. Next week, we're going to look at how this plays out even more practically in different relationships in our lives.